Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and the renewal of our world. We're so glad that you're listening. What a news week, right? Today's 9-11. Who, uh, above a certain age, doesn't remember exactly where you were. Amy and I were in a preschool meeting with Mackenzie's first preschool teacher, and she suddenly gets called out of the room. You need to come right away. I think her name is Karen. Karen, you need to... She comes back in tears, and we're like, are you okay? And she said, my husband's the director of White House security, and we can't find him. And we were like, they can't find your husband? And that was the beginning of our 9-11 experience that morning. And uh, a lot of us have read or been reminded just here in the last couple days that Queen Elizabeth did something pretty remarkable on September 13th when she had the old guard in front of Buckingham Palace at the changing of the guard play the United States Star-Spangled Banner. This was so odd and different from British tradition. And crowd members today talking about the tears streaming down their faces, they felt so united as a world. How the British people felt like Americans and the unity. And I just, you know, I just... That's my thought. You know, there's lots of thoughts about the monarchy. Amy and I watch The Crown. It's one of my favorite shows in terms of writing and the way it's scripted and the production value of The Crown. I think it's remarkable. It's, it's, it's pretty historical, we're told. And so there's lots of thoughts on the monarchy, and you could really tie it to how there's ultimately really supposed to be one king, those of us who follow Jesus. You know, so if I get deep into that thought... And yet, this was a woman that I think uh, the, the, the Washington Post yesterday wrote an article that was really interesting about how she doesn't really necessarily stand for fem- feminism today and a lot of things that we, we value in terms of what it is to be a woman. And yet, she worked every single day. She showed up for work when family members, siblings, were getting caught up with Jeffrey Epstein and grandchildren are moving to Hollywood, to, you know, and all of these things. She showed up for work every day. I thought it was a, a pretty compelling article yesterday. And so just a lot of thoughts that I know we have about our world. And uh, on this day, it just reminds us how sacred life is and what we ultimately crave. We're all ultimately, as a human race, we're craving something better. We wish, we hoped there could be life beyond this life. So many people. We want significance. We work hard and it it becomes narcissism and pride when not centered in Jesus. But we were designed to be significant. And we want that. And I think this day conjures all of those thoughts in us and emotions. And it just reminds me to dig into the source of life. And that's what we're about here at Dulles. Okay, before jumping into my message, I haven't made my Super Bowl prediction. So, um, the Bills. I'm going to, I'm going to, no, that's cheating because they looked unstoppable the other night. (laughs) I really think they might be. Uh, I'm going to go with, I always go something obscure. I'm going to go with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, Nobody's predicting them this year, so I'm going to predict them. Okay, they're going to win the Super Bowl. You heard it here. Of course, that means now it absolutely won't happen. I have a reputation of jinxing 
uh, NFL teams. Okay, so we are at a very critical time here. It's, um, it's September. We follow, as a church, the school calendar. This is the start this week and next week. Uh, this month is really the start of our new year here at Dulles. Vacations kind of suck our energy, and we, we end up feeling disconnected. This happens all over the country and in church communities. And September's when people are kind of craving connection again. And, and maybe don't admit it, but, you know, I don't feel terribly close to God, and I want to get reconnected to him. And so we think here at Dulles strategically around September being the start of our year. And I want to talk about something very specific as we're ending the series in the coming weeks, the most exciting, most exciting idea on earth. I'm, I challenge people to find something more exciting than what we're talking about in the movement of God toward making all things new and choosing the church, imperfect people like you and me, to be part of that movement. And we look at church history and we see divisions and fighting and wars that have started and judging other people. None of that reflects Jesus and what he designed the church to be. The church that looks like him and sounds like him and actually behaves in the community like him is incredibly compelling. We believe for, for so many people who aren't actually rooted in deep pride, that idea is irresistible. And so as we, as we really significantly, and I think in a challenging, inspiring way, wrap up the series, conclude the series here in the coming weeks, we're also starting our new, our new year together. And I'm going to talk today about my favorite kind of person. And if you think, well, Brad, we're not about favoritism here, and we don't exclude, we don't. We don't exclude anybody, and yet I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to express some favoritism today from my own personal perspective, of who the best kinds of people are. <laughs> and I'm going to start that by going back to when I was 14. I remember pretty well the summer that I was 14. I'd like to say that was 2004 or 1994, but it wasn't. It was 1984. I was 14. I was going into high school that fall. I played high school football, freshman football. Later that year, I would play freshman baseball. And so that summer before high school, I remember thinking, you know, the normal thoughts, like I, I want to be liked going into high school. But beyond that, I wanted to be admired. And I had this thought about sports, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in a sports group in high school. Like people might actually follow me in some ways. Like I, I, I might be, you know, in today's language, I'm, I might be an influencer. I'd love, that would be cool. And I became kind of obsessed. I was obsessing that summer around the idea, how cool would it be to end up being cool? Okay, so that's the same summer that our family went to on our weekly beach trip to Ocean City, Maryland. We did this every year, and we were out on this at, at, at dinner one night on this gigantic, like, covered deck of a restaurant. I want to say, like, Maybe 100 people were eating. In this, it was packed on this, like, terrace. And my mom asked me to go get her a large ice water. And so I got up and went through all the people and the tables across this large deck area, up a couple steps to a window, and asked for a large ice water. And what they gave me, I don't know what it was about 
this water. It was so humongous. It was like the largest cup of ice water I'd ever seen. And maybe I just didn't get out of Winchester very much as a kid. I don't know. But I was like super excited about this. And I turned. And in my loud 14-year-old voice, I was always told that, you know, when I was excited, I, I talked way too loud. I'm still told that by certain people. Um, I turn with this giant cup of water, and I say, like, over everybody's heads, Mom, look at the size of this ice. And before I could get the water out, you know how something happens to you, and it takes you a couple seconds, your brain, a couple seconds to figure out what's going on? It took me, a, like, a second to realize I'm falling. And not only did I, I forgot I went up two steps to this window to order the ice water. And so not only, I didn't just miss one step, I missed two steps and essentially fell into the room throwing this water out toward everyone. And I don't remember being embarrassed much as a kid, but I remember feeling humiliated. I mean, I hit the deck. Just my stomach and legs, my face, everything was just flat. People are wet from this huge water. And I had been loud enough when I turned to say, Mom, look, that apparently I interrupted a lot of the conversation. And people turned just in time to see me step off that deck, you know, and throw water everywhere. And I remember the sound of everybody, you know, doing one of those, oh, And so I stand up with everybody looking at me, holding this enormous empty cup, and I just walked through all the tables in between everybody back to our table where my family was laughing like so hard they couldn't breathe, you know, like one of those things. And it's amazing at whatever age how hard we work at being liked, at impressing. That doesn't stop with teenage years. In fact, I think adults probably struggle with this more than maybe teens do. And how, in just a couple of seconds, it only takes two or three seconds for us to be humbled. So today I want to talk about my favorite kind of person, and it is not the person that is trying to impress or even is impressive necessarily is not my favorite kind of person. It's not the person who succeeds. We've got people here. I'm looking at people here who do some pretty impressive things. We had a wine and cheese uh, hangout a a few weeks ago with some people newer here to Dulles this summer, and I just heard some amazing stories of things that people do. Fascinating. I want to talk to them more. I want to learn more about what they do. But that is not... What draws me into somebody, defining the the kind of person that I say is my favorite kind of person, my favorite kind of human. My, in my humble opinion, my favorite kind of person is a person who centers their life in pursuit of God, of the things that matter to God, what he thinks of the world, what he cares about, his timing. His character growing and developing in us and in people. His answers for what ails this world. His solutions. I'm not talking about people who walk around using religious language. I'm not talking about that. 
That's not very impressive to me. It's, it's, that's not very compelling to me. We have a lot of religious-sounding people in the world. I'm not talking about people who wear Christian symbols all over their clothing or want everybody to know, hey, I'm a church person. That's not very compelling to me. I'm not talking about that kind of person. I'm talking about the person who deeply cares about the solution of our world and the solution of my and our own lives being the hope and reality of God. People who want God's heart, who want to see and be a part of what he's doing, what he's actively doing in this world. I have developed the conviction that there's no one more compelling, no, more, no one more exciting in this world, more grounded, more wise, more loving. I'm going to say fun and creative. Again, I'm not talking about the, 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 maybe the paradigm or the, 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 the idea that comes to mind when you think of somebody who's God-centered. We tend to think of big Bibles and people who you know, want to talk about their faith really quickly at work. That's just not, I, I think that's often a turnoff. Like it's just forced. You're trying to preach at people. I'm not talking about that kind of person. I'm talking about somebody who deep in their core believes our world is broken. There's something broken inside of me. And God has made me to be alive, and he has a plan for me and for others. And I want that more than I want anything else. It's an incredibly enticing, attractive person. It's the most attractive person, in my opinion. Now, here's another opinion that I've formed over the years, and that is that we've, we face two kinds of problems in our lives, in our world. There's the problem that is unavoidable. It's no one's fault. You can't blame anyone for this kind of problem. And it's the problem, the problems that emerge from our world being broken. And I'm just going to remind you, we here at Dulles believe the story of God, that our world is broken. It doesn't mean God did something wrong. It, it, he didn't lose control. He designed this world with human beings being the supreme object of his creation. We're the only object made in his image to reflect him. And instead of reflecting him, we chose to make ourselves the center of the universe. We chose selfishly to be in charge. And that had the effect of breaking creation. And as a result of our world being broken, we have things that just, it's no one's fault. It's because we live in a, we have diseases. And thank God that part of his renewal plan, I believe, are doctors in the medical community, in science, in medicine. We have things in this world that are unavoidable because our world is broken. Problems that we face, like accidents happen. It can rain all night long and people's basements can flood. I mean, these are things that happen in a broken world, a world that's been marred by something. And we believe deeply here that what humans marred this world. We... We were the flaw. Our selfishness was the flaw. And Jesus, the whole story of Jesus coming was to renew and move back to perfection, move back to what we all crave. No tears and no death. And so that's one type of problem that you and I face. And in large part, they're unavoidable. And there's, they're just, they're nobody's fault. It's not a family member's fault. It's not a previous generation's fault. It's just we're in a broken world. The, I want to talk about the other kind of problem that we face. And this is more significant. 
And I see people struggling in this kind of problem so much, so much. And it's the problems that emerge from not living our lives centered around the things of God, what matters to him, what he dreams about, what his plan is, his character, what he wants to see happen in our world. The excitement and hope of God actually permeating us and our thinking and erasing our old paradigms and our pessimism and our experiences and the trauma that we've experienced and the way others have treated us to this whole new transcendent way of looking at the future. And when we're not centered around those things, all kinds of hell and crap and problems emerge in, hum in humanity. Largely around interpersonal relational problems, anxiety and stress that we carry, uncertainty about the future. These things preoccupy humanity, particularly today in our world, in our generation. And they exist because we have decided to prioritize or pursue something greater than, something as if there's something more significant, our own success, our income, how well we do at work, being liked. We have a whole generation today that's been taught by technology that the purpose of life is how much we are liked or recognized, not even face-to-face, -face, digitally. And this kind of thinking, it skews us, it, it spirals us in the broken. We continue cycling in this broken existence that none of us like. We all want escape from the inner turmoil and the anxieties and the stress and the uncertainties. And so, yeah, we're going to talk here for just, we, just a few more minutes about correcting that, course correcting that. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, this is what Jesus is doing here. This statement is said right after a story he tells. He's telling a story in the verses preceding that have been come, uh, they've come to be called uh, the parable of the rich fool. Jesus is addressing in his world, get this, in his world 2,000 years ago, in the poverty, the impoverished region of the Roman Empire we call Palestine or ancient Israel, the dangers of thinking success by how the world defines success is the real purpose of life. He's saying people get caught up in this. People who are rich and successful and people who are in poverty, both spectrums believe that success by the world standards is the ultimate destination of life, and it will leave you feeling empty, Jesus tells us. It will leave you after long projects, or at the end of your life, or at the end of a struggling relationship that once made you happy, you will cycle back to something's off. This didn't fulfill me. I thought this money, I thought she, I thought he would satisfy. There's something not filling my life. And Jesus is addressing that with this parable. And so he tells the story of a very successful man. He happens to be a farmer. He's so successful that his success turns into more success. And so this man that Jesus is talking about contemplates the big problem of life. And in his perspective, remember, 
especially in impoverished ancient Israel, this man's paradigm of problem is that he's so successful, he no longer has storage for all of his produce. All of his storage barns are full. And now he has more grain and more produce. What do I do with all of my success? <laughs> and he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my storage barns, and I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I can store all my new success. And then this is what I'll do. I'll kick back. I'm going to enjoy life, and I'll eat, and I'll drink, and I'll be merry. And Jesus tells us that the end of the story is that God the Father responds to this man and says, you fool. You will leave this life and you will leave it without leaving any substance because you thought it was all about you. You thought it was all for you. And then Jesus delivers this line that we just read. I'm going to read it again. This is how it will be for anyone with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. I see so many problems today. I'm not thinking about a single person when I say this. If you're like, oh my gosh, I just sat with Brad at coffee two weeks ago. He's I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about all of us. I'm talking about so many people and in the news and just culture. We have so many problems today that are avoidable if we would listen to the words of Jesus and understand there is a source of centeredness that actually removes anxiety, uncertainty about the future. It actually calms my spirit. This source of life actually leads to laughter, like real, sustained laughter, joy. And is getting out of my head and heart the paradigm and the American concept that I grew up with believing that success and achieving and getting to the next level, the next corporate, the next career move. Or that if my relationship, if, if, if this construct could happen in my neighborhood, if I could have this kind of family, we're actually competing. It is so ingrained in our psyche that we're actually competing. We don't even know it. We're competing with other people. And Jesus is saying, if you will allow my concept, if you will allow my version of life to begin to be embedded in you, to permeate the way you think and look and talk and act, a lot of these problems, not the, not the unavoidable problems that happen because our world is broken, the, the many, many more problems that we deal with on a daily basis, because we're not properly centered, you will find joy and confidence about the future. Your relationships will be rich and meaningful and have substance. Jesus is saying we struggle with these problems because we're not prioritizing his kingdom. Now, there's a word that a lot of us hear a lot in churches it's, it's, a, it's a common word in church life, the kingdom of God. We sing it in songs at Christmas time. We hear it in a lot of Christmas carols, this language about the kingdom of God. This is an important word to properly understand. Jesus not only used the word kingdom a lot, it's the primary reason he came. Not to just talk about God's kingdom, and then we're going to explain what it means here in a minute. 
He came to bring God's kingdom into our space and realm, into our world. We, we often think that Jesus' primary purpose was to come and be born as a baby at Christmas time. Or we think more Easter-like, Jesus' primary purpose, the number one reason he came was to die. And, and the resurrection, and super significant event that changed human history, but it's actually not the primary reason he came. His death and resurrection were a subplot, a, a, a subcomponent of him bringing into our world the kingdom of God. Replacing death and selfishness and our guilt and our shame and the things that hold us back and spiral us away from true life. He came to take all of that garbage onto the cross and essentially kill it. And then came out of the tomb alive three days later offering us life over dead things and over what holds us back in brokenness. Super significant, but that's a part of him bringing the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom? What does that mean? We're all thinking about this. We're thinking about monarchies now this week. The kingdom of God refers to two components of God, two aspects of God. One is intangible. It's the intangible stuff or possessions or happenings in God's realm. The intangibles, God's heart, things you can't touch or or see with your eyes. God's heart, his character, his will, his timing, his integrity. Seeking those things of God's kingdom means I want his integrity growing in me. I want his character, the way he views difficult people. I want that to grow and develop in me, my anger, my quick-tempered reaction, my defensiveness. I want to become like Jesus. I want to become slower to speak, more calm. Like, those are the intangibles of God's kingdom. Then there's the tangible. Remember, God's kingdom is very much about the tangible also. Jesus came here. He didn't just speak in this audible voice from the clouds and we can't see him. Who's speaking? I love you. I've got a plan. He came here. Incarnate, the Greek, in flesh, he came here to live in our pain and our challenges and to reveal something completely different. We have our faith and hope in everyday life in Washington, D.C., and politics and the midterms ele- uh, midterm election coming up. Jesus came to say, no, 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 no. There's something so radically different than the solutions of this world. It's, it's my kingdom. I've brought my kingdom. The tangible Aspects of God's kingdom are things like God's working in your life, changing your heart, softening you, repairing marriages and and broken relationships. God putting a desire in you to be part of his movement in this world where your story, your honest story of struggle or anxiety or what God has done in you. Gives hope and life to others. Preaching at somebody turns people off. It repels them. You telling your story, hey, I, I, I've had an encounter. Maybe hard to explain in some ways, but something's changed me. And in a trusted relationship where somebody's listening, really listening, you say, it's Jesus. I'm, t- I'm telling you, I grew up kind of turned off to church, and I just thought it was all kind of crazy talk, but people are craving those stories. 
The tangible of God is you seeing someone drawn into your story. Asking you, can I come to church with you? There's something, there's something different in the way you talk about humanity and life and struggles and hope. I'm telling you, you step into this and you center yourself around what Jesus says should be first. You start to see these things happen. You say, well, I didn't think I was very articulate. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel confident to talk about my faith. I, how is this happening? People are coming to me for hope and encouragement. They want to go to church with me. That's the tangible of God's kingdom. Growing in you, another, another tangible is growing in you a desire to serve others and take care of other people more than yourself. How do you explain that? The selflessness that's growing, that's part of the tangible of God's kingdom. I see more clearly than I've ever seen, ever in my life, that the happiest people the most attractive people that I know here, around the country, different parts of the world, friends that I know or just built relationships with, the most attractive people, the happiest people, the people that others are most drawn to are people who pursue the kingdom of God. The intangible of God's heart and character and his will and what he wants and the tangible of things actually changing, actually changing our world. My life, my home, my relationships, my attitude. There's nothing more attractive. I'm convinced there's no more attractive person than that person. Jesus goes on to his disciples with his disciples and says, therefore... I tell you, do not worry about your life. Isn't that a strange statement, especially in our world today? All we do is worry about our lives. It's all the news tells us to do. You probably consciously don't think that way when you're listening to the news and the divided and the Fox News and the CNN. And our news tells us that we should be primarily worrying about our lives and whether we're getting what we want or what's right. The American dream, there's, there's, there's good aspects of the American dream, but it's also warped. Pride enters it so quickly and we become obsessive and it's about me and what I'm collecting and what I'm building and my success. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes and this is an impoverished world. Part of the reason Jesus came when he came 2,000 years ago, and the part of the world that he came into was that it was about as broken that you'll ever see humanity in history. The deplorable conditions of poverty, the way humans treated other humans. I hear people today say, oh, the world's never been worse than it is today. That's just not true. It's just not true. I mean, we're one generation removed from the Holocaust. You're talking about horrid circumstances. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about food. Food was an every day, every hour concern in his day. Life is more than about food and the body more than clothes. Jesus is not saying, hey, food doesn't matter. That's ridiculous. I mean, look at the context of how many times Jesus eats with people. In this book, the book of Luke, it's hard to count 
Every time you turn a page, Jesus is eating with outsiders, with the religious arrogant in the chief Pharisee's home. He's eating and drinking at wedding parties in Cana. He eats with the disciples right before his arrest and crucifixion at the Last Supper. He's constantly eating with people. He's not saying food's not important. He's saying life is much more than these things that occupy our attention. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap, work hard for their future. and They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you, humans? The only object in creation that's made in the image of God, we were made to reflect his character in heart, in dreams, in hope. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Worry, the word that, this word worry that Jesus uses in the Greek language means to be anxious or worry about things that might happen or things that might not happen. And boy, we're good at this, aren't we? But this word also has another aspect. The word in the Greek also means to chase after something. When you worry about, you're chasing after things you like, things you think you need, things that give pleasure. Jesus is saying, as long as you continue worrying, chasing after, being anxious about what might happen, what might not happen, it steals from you the connection, the proper connection to the way God's kingdom thinks about the future, about our division, about the neighbor who's got that problem or is hateful, the career that you just seem to be cycling in or doesn't fulfill you. He's got the proper perspective on all of these things. You lose sight of that. You, 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 you continue in the cycle from problem to problem, inner turmoil. I've got to figure this out. I wasn't depressed last week, but I feel depression coming back in again. I'm, I, I, I just can't, just never happy. There's no real sustained joy. It's because we have learned to worry about the things that can happen or not happen or what I think I really need or what I really want. Jesus is saying there's a whole different way of living real life. He's confronting both types of worry. He's telling us that if we become consumed or preoccupied with our likes or wants or what could happen or what, what might not happen, it's, it robs from us our fuel for real life. What truly makes us whole, that old Jewish word, Hebrew word, shalom, wholeness in every aspect of life. My relationships, my joy, the laughter that is a regular part of my life. Shalom, wholeness is robbed from when I worry about these things that God already knows I need and care about. And he will provide in his right timing. Consider how the wild, wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spend, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor. Solomon was the wealthiest man and the wisest man alive in that era of the Old Testament. And as spectacular as Solomon was in all of these spectacles, he was nothing like how the wildflowers were dressed. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, 
which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world, that word pagan sounds like judgmental or harsh, but it simply means the person who does not pursue the things of God. That's what pagan literally means. They pursue other things. What's going to satisfy me? What's going to make me happy? Me being in control. That's what the original word pagan means. That's what the pagan world runs after. But your father knows that you need these things. But seek first. Instead, seek first, Jesus says. His kingdom. Matthew tells the same story. In Matthew 6, he adds, in his righteousness. That sounds like a high church word. Righteousness, a person's righteousness means whatever they deem to be right. Their paradigm, their perspective of what's right. Seek God's righteousness. What does he think is right? Is that my first priority today? Is that your, do you wake up in the morning thinking, what does God think is right for our country, for our, my friends, for that, that person I'm struggling with at work? My job that just, I, here I am halfway through my career and it's just not what I thought it was going to be. He has a right way of thinking about that. What he's shaping in you, what he's teaching you. What he's developing, and he cares so much more about what he's developing in you than your success. He does care about your success. He cares a lot more about what he's turning you into, who you are becoming. These are the right ways of thinking. This is the righteousness or what's right to God. Seek first, Jesus says, God's kingdom and his righteousness. And these things, these other things you need will be given to you. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you chase after, whatever you obsess over, whatever preoccupies you, actually truly has your heart. I'm going to brag on Chris Sutherland here. I thought about, man, I could pick a bunch of people. And Chris and I just, we walked recently and we had an interesting conversation. And so I just decided I'm going to pick Chris. Chris walked into our doors here. I remember very well. I'm going to use the word cynical, Chris. You were cynical primarily of church, a little bit of God. But you were more open to God. You hadn't completely given up on God, but you had given up on church. You didn't trust church. You didn't trust church leaders. And... it's a long story, but he was walking one day or driving in his car, and he saw one of our signs, and he just had something in him, like, I, I, think I, need to, I think I need to go. He fought it, and he walked in our doors knowing this pastor is going to be a clown, and I'm going to hear all this. It's all going to be about money, and, it's gonna, and something else happened, and here he is. Here he sits here today, and I've just watched in my relationship with Chris somebody who really believed in politics and had political views that were going to, this is our hope and this has to happen. And I've just watched somebody become so convinced that the real solution of this world is the plan of Jesus. And so we were walking recently and Chris was just telling me, you know, I just, I, I used to watch the news and I'd think this and I'd be so upset with this person. And I, was, I, I can relate. I was super passionate politically years and years ago about rights or wrongs, and he, he just, I couldn't count how many times he's referring to Jesus' plan, the heart that's grown in him, how patient he's become, his perspective has changed, his view of people. And I'm telling you, 
This might sound like I'm kind of hitting on you, Chris. I mean, when I say Chris is one of the most attractive people that I know. Sorry, Aim. I'm doing this, doing this right in front of Amy. I'm not even hiding it. I, I, I am using Chris as an example. There is nothing more attractive in a person than, say, than, than the one who says, I used to think this way. I would be so angry. I'd get my, my marriage. I'd react or blame her for it. And now, man, God is shaping me. There's something beautiful happening in me. I don't. I'm not drawn to Chris because he's done something famous at work or something significant. He's done something that put him in a newspaper that makes him like, hey, let's hang out with Chris. Maybe Chris has a lot of money that I don't know about. That's kind of cool. Maybe I'll hang out with you more if that's true. But no, I'm kidding. Those aren't things that draw me to people. It's the centeredness on there is actually a solution for this world. And it's the most exciting idea that we've ever heard. That Jesus came into imperfect humanity and said, I can write you. I can begin the process of changing you from the inside out. And then, oh, by the way, I want you to be part of that movement called the church. And yes, I'm going to wait and restore humanity until the church wakes up and says, I want to actually be part of this. I'm not going to just attend church and be encouraged for me and hope that Brad or the songs remind me of God, and then I'll go back alone out into the world again. But I'm actually going to be part of the movement of Jesus. That's when the world's going to start to change. When the church wakes up and says, this is about the movement of God using his body. Paul calls it his arms and legs and feet and ears and eyes. We are the body of Jesus in this world today. The voice of love and mercy and the stories of hope and the different way of thinking about the political world or the divisions or the neighbor across the street. It's a, it's a different way of leading people towards hope and good in a future that's exciting. I mean, ultimately, Jesus will restore us back to the Garden of Eden. Scripture says that from beginning to end. That's where we're headed. But everything's on hold until the people who are being changed by Jesus become part of his solution in this world. Call to action. My notes say, how do we put this into practice? I'm going to close with this. I'm going to invite our band to come. They're going to, they're going to close us out this morning. Now, this is where everybody watches the band. Who's going to go up the left steps, the right steps? Listen, listen to me. This is my final point here. This is how we put this into practice. What do we do about this? Some simple steps. Consume Luke 12, 21 through 34. Read it six, seven, eight times this week. Reread the story. Get it into your psyche. Get it into your spirit. Read it tomorrow. Read it tonight. Read it Tuesday. Read it a couple times a day. I mean, we're talking about seconds or minutes. Consume it like you're eating bread, like you're eating food. And when, you're fin- when you get through seven, eight, nine times, read the book of Luke. Read the gospel. The great extraordinary news is what gospel means of the life of Jesus in Luke and in John. Read N.T. Wright's book. I've mentioned this recently. I'm going to keep mentioning it until people start telling me they're reading. I haven't heard a single person say, hey, I'm reading the book. Wow. Hey, I've got this question. Not not one person's mentioned this to me, so I'm just going to keep. N.T. Wright wrote an extraordinary book that shifts. It will shift the whole paradigm of the church around the world called Surprised by Hope. It's about the movement of Jesus in our world today and our role in it. Join a group. I lead a group on Monday nights. 
It's a men's fire pit group. Men just, we, we process life together and work and struggles, and we, we talk about faith, really putting faith into practice. You want to sit around a fire one hour on Monday nights? Join us. We have like 14 guys that come pretty regularly. Amy leads a group for young moms. Talk about hard wife and work and being a good mom and keeping your sanity. You guys need each other. Like, do whatever it takes to be part of that group. Uh, I heard talk, and I think this is going to happen, a, a new Sunday football group where people just watch football together, maybe during halftime, process Sunday morning message, and how do we put this into practice kind of conversation for 20 minutes. If you're interested in that, let us know on our website or app. If you're interested in a deep dive this fall for five weeks in a study that focuses on how can I be confident, really confident about faith, or Jesus, or the Bible. Can I really trust the Bible? Let us know. We need to hear from you. We're going to put this together if there's interest. Or if you're interested in a deep dive, five or six week study on Ephesians, remarkable letter of Paul. If you want to really absorb and study, what does this letter really mean for me and my life and the church? Let us know through our app or our website. We good? Are you in this with me? Do you, do you sense that we are not talking about playing church, just showing up once a week and listening to an encouraging message? We're talking about Jesus actually changing us, centering our lives, making our lives primarily about his way, his dreams, his hope, his answers, his power, his love, getting a hold of us changing the trajectory of our lives, and it's spilling out to others. It's just what I live for, and it's what I want us to... We're not going to be perfect. But, man, we're going to see God. We're going to be in awe of God working through us, imperfect people. Like, wow, look what's happening. Just because we said, yes, I'm tired of chasing success. I'm tired of chasing being liked. could talk about this for hours. Our band's going to close. Our closing prayer is going to be this song. Let's stand together.